You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 1st of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The world anticipates or braces for an extremely consequential year of elections. Earth's largest democracy and one global flashpoint prepare to go to the polls, and arguably Europe's most important election of 2024 is one which isn't happening. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to a special edition of the Monocle Daily coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests, Rana Mitter, Erin Cook, Julia Lassica, and Shruti Kapila, will discuss 2024's biggest elections. Well, some of them, given that we have 11 months to worry about the United States shooting itself in its other foot, so we'll be concentrating on the first few months of the looming cephalogical calendar. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and first to Taiwan, where campaign season for the January 2024 presidential elections is in full swing. Voters are presented with four candidates and while economic and energy policies will be key for voters, the chief foreign policy issue is of course how to manage relations with China. Both Beijing and Washington DC will be watching closely for what the election augurs for cross-strait tensions and Taiwan's relationships with the world's two major powers. Well, I'm joined today by Rana Mitter, director of Oxford University's China Centre. Let's start with the polling on the presidential election. It, it is very tight, but how tight do you think it is actually? Can any one of the three principal contenders actually win this thing? At the moment, the polling seems to suggest that there is not exactly level pegging, but certainly much more closeness between the three main candidates than has previously been thought. So at the moment, the favourite is still what you might call the incumbent candidate, the candidate of the party that currently holds the presidency, the DPP. And that is uh, Lai Jingde, William Lai, who seems at the moment most likely to win. However, the two other candidates, Hou Yu-i of the KMT opposition, the Nationalist Party, and also Ke Wenzhe of the TPP are sitting in an area where it looks as if one of them potentially could burst through if there's a kind of late push in their sides. What actually was originally thought of back in about October, November, was that the two opposition parties might team up and put one person at the head of the ticket. That would be much more dangerous to the incumbent party. But as it is, they didn't get their act together, didn't manage to do that. And now it looks like it's a three-man race. And therefore, the favourite is still likely to be the incumbent DPP. Obviously, the wider world's interest in this election will be whether the result of it makes any meaningful difference to the status of Taiwan. Is that likely, do you think? Because if, as you say, William Lai is the DPP's semi-incumbent, he's currently the vice president, would he work towards any shift of direction as far as Taiwan was concerned? I think actually, while the outcome of the election is important, it's not existential. In other words, if the DPP wins, if uh, Lai Jingde, William Lai wins, then he's likely to carry on the current policy, which is basically saying that in a sense, Taiwan is autonomous. There's no need 
for Taiwan to declare independence formally. And I think it's very unlikely he'd do that, not least because the US would uh, be on the phone basically saying, under no circumstances should you do this. And therefore, he wouldn't be triggering the red line, which China has always said would launch potentially a, a conflict. But he'd say, in a sense, that Taiwan keeps its autonomy and that in a sense, I think that he's happy to have some sort of interaction with the mainland. I think the DPP would say that it's the mainland that refuses to actually talk to Taiwan. If there were to be a victory for one of the other two leading candidates, uh, Mr. Ho of the KMT or Dr. Kerr of the TPP, I think Beijing would think that there was a more immediate pathway to start some sort of dialogue with them. They have never said that they'd refuse to talk to the KMT, which, of course, is the old Civil War enemy back from the 1940s. But both parties have changed considerably since then. The, the CCP, the communists on the mainland, nationalists on the island of Taiwan. And the TPP candidate, a bit of a dark horse, but uh, Dr. Kerr, Professor Kerr, as he's known, Professor K, is also someone who it's thought Beijing would at least open lines to. So in that sense, we either have, you know, more of the same in the short term, or we have potentially slightly more dialogue with China. I mean, that question is, of course, the one that will most preoccupy the watching world. But would we be making a mistake in assuming that this is what most actual Taiwanese will be voting on in the presidential as well as parliamentary elections? Is the future status of Taiwan the overarching issue where the actual voters are concerned or are there domestic issues in play as well? It's a key issue, but it's not the only issue. Essentially, the consensus is that the DPP have not done well on the economy, and a lot of voters are finding their economic situation means that they might want to seek a different uh, direction. China policy is important, but I think that most people would say that they don't have any sense, really, that the mainland would launch any kind of attack or conflict in the very near future, regardless of the election outcome. I think most sides, including actually in Beijing, are waiting to see what happens in the US presidential election in November of uh, 2024, because essentially a Trump presidency might potentially lead to a very different policy on Taiwan compared to a continuation of Biden or another Democratic president. And I think that neither Taiwan nor the mainland really knows exactly which direction things will go until they know who the US president is and what position that person and their party has in terms of how much support they would give to Taiwan. And just finally, what attitude do you expect China itself to take to this election? Are they likely to just back off and let the Taiwanese sort it out? Or do we anticipate efforts, whether overt or covert, by China to put their thumb on the scales? There's already quite a lot of disinformation being passed into Taiwan's social media from mainland sources. I think that's fairly well known and acknowledged. In terms of open intervention, probably not that much because they know that it tends to be counterproductive. The mainland saying you should vote for person X or Y doesn't tend to encourage Taiwan voters to follow what the mainland says. But having said that, I think quietly they will be hoping for a KMT or TPP victory, but already, I think, gaming for the likely outcome, which is a continuation of the DPP. Rana Mitter, thank you. Now to Indonesia, where the world's third largest democracy is set to hold its next general election on February 14th. From promising to cut costs of pilgrimage to Mecca to giving schools free milk, presidential candidates are stepping up their populist games on the campaign trail. I'm joined now by Erin Cook, Jakarta-based journalist and author of Dari Mulut Ke Mulut, a newsletter about Southeast Asia. 
First of all, before we get to who's actually contesting this thing, I, I do feel like we should talk a bit about the scale of it. India gets all the plaudits for obviously putting on this extraordinary carnival of democracy when it holds an election. But in terms of scale and logistics, an Indonesian election is not far behind, is it? No, and the election bodies that oversee the election, they like to pull out this technicality where Indonesia is the world's largest one-day election <laughs> because they're doing uh, president plus all levels of government down to sort of local neighbourhood bosses. So it's a lot of people voting for a lot of different people. Well, one thing we do know is that Indonesia will have a change at the top table. There will be a new president of Indonesia. If we look at the incumbent, who would he favour as a successor? Well, this is the interesting part here. I think if you asked this a year ago, it would have looked like President Jokowi, the outgoing president, was leaning towards Ganjar Pranowo, who is the governor of central Java. So immensely popular and from the same sort of hometown region and the same party as well. In the last six months, that has just swung dramatically. Jokowi's kind of backed away from both Ganjar and the party supporting supporting him, which also brought him into power back in 2014. And he's now very much behind his own former challenger, Prabowo Subianto. So it gets a bit complicated here. Prabowo went against Jokowi in 2014 and 2019 and then joined Jokowi's cabinet after the election in 2019. So they've been very tight for the last few years. But with the naming of Gibran, who is the eldest son of Jokowi, as Prabowo's running mate, Jokowi's not going to come out and say it, but it's extremely clear to everybody who he's backing this time around. Well, let's talk a bit about Prabowo. As you have intimated, he is very much a known quantity. He's been defence minister. He's had several cracks at becoming president. Does that tell against him? Do Indonesians think that he comes to this with a sense of entitlement, like, you know, it's my turn now? That's a very interesting way to put it. A lot of the polling suggests that a lot of people do feel that way, particularly people who are supporting Ganja Pranowo's camp. But we've also seen this very weird emerging thing amongst younger voters who are, for the first time, now the, the major cohort of voters uh, between 18 and 40. They're, it's hundreds of millions of people. And a lot of these young people are saying, you know, Pranowo's been around for 25, 30 years. Maybe it's time we gave him a chance. This is his moment. And it's interesting because he's leaning into that very heavily. For a long time, uh, with Prabowo's background in the military for so long, he's always lent kind of into this strong arm, strong, what do they call it? Strong man, military leadership kind of guy. But this year we're seeing him go very, very soft. He's trying to look like everybody's sweet old granddad. And it's kind of a jarring juxtaposition between the 2019-2014 camps and today. I mean, among those three front runners for the top job, do you get the sense that there's any radical divergence in their vision for what sort of country Indonesia should look like on the world stage? Because certainly when we talk about Indonesia from a long way away here in London, what always strikes us as remarkable is that you have this absolutely enormous country with any number of faiths, ethnicities, languages, like you know, this extraordinary hodgepodge. And yet for all of that, it's relatively quiet and calm. It doesn't often appear in international headlines. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely true. I think the political class 
as well is much more homogenous than the way the country actually looks. I think between the two front runners, between Ganja and Prabo, there's not much in it at all. They both have vowed to kind of continue with Jokowi's economic plans or his infrastructure ideas and all that sort of thing. It's Anis Baswedan who is running a very distant third to the other two, who's kind of wants to do something a bit more interesting. He's not particularly out there. He doesn't have brand new ideas that he wants to bring in or tear down too much Jokowi has been doing, but he is talking about, you know, maybe building a new capital city in the middle of the bush isn't such a great idea when the country's still trying to economically recover from COVID. He's much more supportive of uh, and outspoken of Palestine, which is becoming a very big emerging issue in the race. And I think that's a really interesting factor that Anise is so far behind, but he's the only one that seems to actually be saying anything, the only one who seems to have any actual ideology behind him. I mean, for all that, Palestine is, for obvious reasons, becoming an issue in Indonesia, as it is in a lot of looming elections around the world. The truism doubtless applies as much in Indonesia as it does anywhere else that foreign policy doesn't win or lose elections. So if we think about it domestically from where you're sitting in Jakarta right now, what strike you as the kind of issues that will be inducing voters to pick one candidate or the other? This is always the question. I feel like... uh us nerds struggled with this in 2014 and 2019 as well. Indonesia is often talked about as not having quite definitive ideological differences between the candidates. So rather becomes this sort of much broader narrative. Do you want to support Prabowo and become, you know, a strong Indonesia that is ready to take on the world, who wants to focus on defence policy, that sort of thing. Or do you want a Ganja-led government who might be more interested in building up safety nets, building up the welfare system, investing more in education? At this stage, we still don't have too much of a clear idea of what policy ideas anybody really has. The election manifestos came out a few weeks ago. Even that was fairly lorem ipsum sort of style, not too much concrete plans. That's definitely going to be the big question of the next few weeks where the candidates will have to try to differentiate themselves a bit further than than what they have done so far. Uh, and just finally, some, some words for the outgoing incumbent. What kind of legacy are people talking about, um, well, the almost former president having bequeathed? This is incredible. I would not have expected this. Jokowi has remained very, very popular for his almost 10-year tenure now, within the last six months, though, he has proven that he may be just as much of a craven, elitist politician as all of his successors, who he claimed he was so different from. He's been very much involved with getting his son onto the ticket alongside Prabowo Subianto, and that's been very widely viewed as a bit of a, a bit of a dirty deal. His brother-in-law was on the constitutional court, who made a ruling allowing his son to run. So it's becomes very tricky. It's definitely clouded his his legacy for the next little while at least. Erin Cook, thank you.
You're listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio. Russia holds a presidential election in March. President Vladimir Putin will win, but has not, as of this broadcast, revealed by how much. Polls will open in the four Ukrainian oblasts which Russia claims to have annexed. Ukraine has already said that any Russian vote in the regions will be null and void, and that it will prosecute any observers sent to monitor voting. Ukraine is also theoretically due to hold its presidential election in March, but under the current regime of martial law prompted by Russia's invasion, this appears unlikely. Well, with me now is Julia Lassica, Polish-Ukrainian journalist based in London. Well, Julia, let's start with Ukraine's presidential election, which in happier times would be due on March 31st, but, but is just not. Yes, they're not. And Ukrainian society is pretty much in agreement on this. Even though Western partners have called for the elections to happen, civil society in Ukraine, general population statistics shows that people think actually it would be much worse for democracy to hold an election now. Why is that? Why do people... I mean, there are obvious reasons not to hold an election in the current circumstances, which is that leaving aside the astonishing logistical difficulties of doing this while a country is at war, millions of people displaced internally or externally, the fact that the election itself would likely become a target for Russia. Why do people think it would be bad for Ukraine's democracy? Well, this whole fight that Ukraine is having now is to preserve its democracy in the way that it should be. And that means everyone can participate, everyone is represented. And as you said, all of that plays into it. All the people who are displaced, who are outside of Ukraine's borders, who are internally displaced, all the soldiers who are on the front line who wouldn't be able to vote properly, all of this would mean that these elections would sort of tarnish the really important democratic tradition that Ukraine has had. And it's pretty unique in the area that since independence in 1991, elections have always been held and they've always been fair. And if they haven't been fair, they have been reversed, like in the case of 2004, the Orange Revolution. They've been not reversed, but they've been kind of redone so that they are fair. And this is what Ukrainians are fighting for, for that fundamental right of going to the ballot box. Everyone can do that. And if you don't include all of these important groups of society, especially soldiers who are giving up their lives for this vote to happen, then for many Ukrainians, that's tarnishing that important tradition that they're actually fighting for. There is also the difficulty, as I understand that to allow elections to happen, martial law would need to be suspended, which I can see opening up a whole other world of difficulties for a government trying to fight a war. Yeah, absolutely. And then, I mean, this is just the reality of many people gathering in one place. How do you manage that? Do you ask embassies in other countries? It's just totally impossible. That said, it's not like President Zelensky is attempting to leverage the crisis in order to keep himself in a job. He has, I think, made it fairly clear that, yeah, in happier circumstances, he would be absolutely delighted to be running for re-election. But nearly two years into this conflict, there are now signs that there is political opposition to him. He does have his critics, which is, of course, as it should be in a democratic country. 
Yeah, absolutely. So if anything, for Zelensky, it's much worse pushing back the election because his popularity rates are slipping and soldiers and especially the military leadership, so the head commander Zaluzhny, he is emerging as kind of the most trusted figure in Ukraine. His approval ratings are in many polls higher than Zelensky's. And so, yes, for Zelensky, this is really inconvenient. But also, you know, with Zelensky, he has the kind of family politics at play. His wife has come out to say that she wouldn't want him to run for a second term anyway. So it's definitely doesn't seem to be a play on his part. I mean, there is one, and I can see that it must be very tempting for both Ukraine's government and Ukraine's allies, one very tempting reason to go ahead and hold this election, which is that the same month Russia is due to host a presidential election. I don't think we need to spend too much time talking about that because the result, I think it's fair to say, has a certain preordained quality, but it would have been quite the contrast. Ukraine being able to say, look, we did this even in these circumstances versus Russia can conducting this preposterous sham. But there will be some regions of Ukraine co-opted in to Russia's presidential election. Yeah, absolutely. So this won't be the first time that Russian elections are being held on Ukrainian territory in Ukrainian annexed areas. And the last time this happened, there were videos on the internet and residents were confirming reports that, you know, armed soldiers are coming round, knocking on their doors, asking them to vote right there and then on the doorstep. And the results of the votes kind of being obviously shown to the soldiers as they were being passed over and so on. So, yes. And I think this is a really good example of why this war is in many ways black and white. Of course, there is one clear aggressor. But then also it shows how much more complicated and nuanced it is in terms of how democracy actually works. You know, what is democracy? Because for Ukrainians, democracy is just as much going to the ballot box as making their civic voice heard in many other different ways. So Zelensky is in many ways, for all the criticism that there is of him, he does respond to public pressure. He is sort of the mouthpiece of what Ukrainians are saying. And for Ukrainians taking part in demonstrations, protests, making their voice heard in different ways, as we saw in the 2004 revolution and 2013 to 2014, that revolution, that's what Ukrainians are demonstrating over and over again since independence, that they can practice democracy in ways other than just at the ballot box. So that's a very important example, whereas, of course, in Russia, people will be herded to the ballot boxes. Representatives are being flown in all the way from Siberia to Ukrainian annexed territories to stand for election there. So, yeah, I think it's a very nuanced look at, you know, how does a democracy actually work? Just finally then, on Russia's presidential election, and there is obviously a certain preordained quality to the result, but does the fact that, at least according to current reports, an anti-war candidate will be permitted to run, this is a former member of the Duma, Boris Nadezhdin, obviously he won't win or go anywhere near winning, but is this just some bleak theatre of Vladimir Putin's trying to make it look like we are a democracy, somebody else has another opinion, I'm grudging allowing that? Um, it's not just Vladimir Putin's kind of method of running elections. This is actually a very long-standing Russian tradition of holding elections. There's a very kind of cemented idea of bringing in sort of puppets that you're paying and having them kind of perform in front of you and sort of trying to create this theatre of democracy, which is a total sham, of course. And obviously, as we saw in August with the coup led by Prigozhin, mm-hmm. unfortunately, it seems like in modern day Russia and really at many other points in Russian history, the only way you can trade power is through force. 
Julia Lassica, thank you. Finally, we look to India, where Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his ruling Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP, are campaigning to be re-elected for a third five-year term. The country's massive electorate, comprising over 600 million people, vote in India's next general elections in April 2024. Back in 2019, India's national security and the role of the armed forces were key elements in the BJP. BJP's campaign. Well, I'm joined now by Shruti Kapila, who teaches Indian history and politics at the University of Cambridge. Um, Shruti, first of all, at the risk of spoiling the surprise for everybody, is there the faintest chance that the BJP won't win? I think it's pretty hard. Having said that, the opposition has been galvanised because the largest number of MPs were suspended from India's parliament for unruly behavior. Having said all of this, there's a lot of energy in the opposition camp, some unity, uh, some idea to kind of try and thwart the Modi juggernaut. But all the indicators point to Prime Minister Modi and the BJP prevailing in 2024. This is, of course, the all-new, reinvigorated, united Indian opposition gathered together under the snappy uh, name Indian National Development Inclusive Alliance, which acronym enthusiasts will already have spotted renders as India. Do they have, though, a plausible figurehead who can be positioned as a, a an alternative prime minister to Modi? Uh, so the Indian National Congress, the largest opposition party in India that Modi had, as it were, trounced, has a Dalit or untouchable president, i.e. Um, Karge. And Karge has today, despite all the internal factions and difficulties, been promoted by some of his worst uh, kind of uh, worst enemies to be coming on as the face of the opposition for the next election, which will be symbolically powerful to pit a kind of untouchable Dalit leader as the figurehead of the opposition. He has he has sort of refused it for now. But there is a figurehead in Kharge, there is a figurehead in Rahul Gandhi, but there are also other regional leaders. It's not lacking in a face. What the opposition lacks is actually the kind of institutional power play and the kind of money machinery that Indian electoral campaigning takes, but also a formidable idea, which is not simply a negation of Modi, but a more positive idea to see what an alternative India, inclusive India, might look like. Well, let's look then at the enduring appeal of Narendra Modi, because for all the criticism he gets, especially abroad, at home he is an extraordinarily popular politician, after two terms has by some polls a 78% approval rating, uh, a net approval of plus 60. He might actually be Earth's most popular politician, certainly, you know, in terms of democracies. What would we say at this point, a decade into his rule, is the basis of his appeal? What do people like about him? So Modi supporters would say that what he has done is, A, not simply a Hindu first agenda, which is actually the foundation of his appeal, a kind of very strong identitarian basis for a Hindu polity and a Hindu life. But also, secondly, the, the way in which, rightly or wrongly, he is perceived in India for making India very strong on the global stage. So whether it is a G20, whether it is its strategic autonomy on the Ukraine issue, 
all these all these sort of you know incremental positions on the global stage have given indians a sense of you know the fact that yes well you know it's not simply colonialism it's that india's time in the world has really arrived and modi has given it a kind of strength that was rightly or wrongly not there before so it's just, thirdly there is a security state element to it uh, you mentioned it in his run up to the 2019 election so it's about strong man security state strong india and hindu first and above all i think modi is still identified despite being the most powerful man for a decade in the world's largest democracy he's still identified by the weak and the vulnerable as someone who rose from very difficult origins to take the top office in india so just finally then if narendra modi is elected to a third term as every observer expects what should the rest of us expect from a narendra modi third term will it just be more of the same or or does he have any new bold ideas that he's hoping to implement there are some domestic bold ideas that have already taken place so in the first term when he came in he barely spoke about hindutva or hindu nationalism second term all his policies have prosecuted the hindu first idea whether it is the abrogation of the special status of kashmir or the making of a big uh, hindu temple in ayodhya and we are seeing glimmers of a kind of major constitutional change uh, india's criminal code is being revamped quite drastically giving enormous powers to the state uh, so yes and domestically india is set to change internationally i think india will see more of the same which which is the kind of prosecution again of a strategic autonomy agenda in 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 the, on the global stage and the g20 moment has been quite as it were paradigmatic for it and i think the contestation with china as a global leader will be the main story in the coming years. Shruti Kapila, thank you for joining us. That's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panelists today, Rana Mitter, Erin Cook, Julia Lassica and Shruti Kapila. Today's show was produced by Tom Webb. Our sound engineer was Jack Dewars. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. 